welcome to the Shoulder Physio Podcast, a podcast dedicated to exploring meaningful topics in musculoskeletal healthcare. I'm your host, Jared Powell. Before we begin, the primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views expressed in this podcast by myself and any guests are information only, do not constitute professional advice and are general in nature. If you act on the basis of any podcast episode, you should obtain specific advice from a qualified health professional before proceeding. Today's guest is Franco Impelazari. Franco is a returning guest on the podcast, having previously been on the show talking about the Nordic hamstring exercise with Christian Torborg. That was episode 17, if you're keen to give it a listen. In this episode, though, I'm interested in the ongoing debate about injury prevention, which Franco and his colleagues have recently published on. If, for example, we give an athlete an exercise program to prevent an injury, say an ACL injury, and that athlete subsequently tears their ACL, does this mean we should refrain from using injury prevention in our common vernacular? Or should we soften our language and use terms such as injury reduction and injury mitigation? Also, what are the ethical and legal consequences of saying prevention, but then not preventing? Or again, are we just getting bogged down in linguistic games, which seems to be commonplace in contemporary health science discussions? We'll see what Franco reckons, and then you, as a critical thinking person, can make your own mind up. Before we start the podcast, a quick note from our sponsor, Clinico. Clinico is a practice management software that's used by 65,000 practitioners worldwide. It's great for busy physios, which is why it's an endorsed partner of the Australian Physiotherapy Association and the Chartered Society of Physiotherapy in the UK. You'll find everything you need to run a successful physio practice in one place, like treatment notes, digital forms, online booking tools, customizable body charts, and much more. Clinico meets privacy legislation for Australia, the UK, the US, and Canada. So wherever you're based, Clinico will help keep you compliant. Charitable donations and giving back are a big part of Clinico. A minimum of 2% of all Clinico subscriptions are donated to charity each month, which means more than 1 million Australian dollars in total has been donated since Clinico was founded. Shoulder Physio podcast listeners can get 60 days for free. Signing up takes less time than this message. Visit clinico.com forward slash shoulder hyphen physio. Without any further delay, I bring to you my conversation with Franco Impalazari. Franco Impalazari, welcome to the show. Thank you again for the invitation. Happy to be here again. Yeah, it was a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we uh, we spoke episode seventeen the last time you were on the show with Christian Torborg talking about the Nordic hamstring exercise. So so listeners kind of know who you are. But in light of that, because everybody knows who you are, because you're kind of famous these days, Franco, I'm not going to ask who you are, what you do, what's a normal Monday to Friday. I want to ask you three or four quick questions right off the bat so we get more of an idea about what makes you tick. Is that okay with you? Perfect. All right, good. So number one, what is your favorite sport or physical activity to watch, observe, or participate in? Well, that's a tough question because I don't want to disappoint anyone. But I, uh, my sport where I grew up is combat sport. So I love combat sports. I love uh, 
boxing and MMA, any any combat sport. Uh, when there is a on the TV someone fighting and always <laughs> watch. So yeah, combat sport are my preferite. Even if I haven't I haven't studied combat sports actually for various reasons, and also now not that much. But when I could, I also practice uh, combat sports. Other than that, team sports in general. But now it's more complicated because in the last, let's say, 20 years, uh, working in this area, the inter- when, when I watch a game, it's, uh, it's different. It's always trying to figure out some something. So I, I don't really enjoy. While combat sport, I enjoy because I don't think about any science or whatever. I just watch and enjoy it. You just get to switch off and, and enjoy it. Yeah, that's 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 good. Okay, number two. This is a bit of a personal one, Franco, so excuse me. What is your biggest failure and uh, what did you learn from that experience? Well, I don't know if I can identify a single big failure. I had a lot of failures and I I, I think that what I could do is to use the failures to improve. And again, this is related to my, it's a cultural issue maybe, and it's related to my history because when you fight, when you lose, or you give up, or you train harder. And I used to train harder. So this is interesting because I'm I'm actually working since a lot of time on a paper in which I want to show my errors uh, because you know, when you work a bit, now I'm working a bit in meta research, so I'm I'm investigating the quality of research of other people. But people may complain because it seems they are pointing the finger, which is not true. Actually, this is meta research, and this is why useful. But that's another maybe topic for another for another podcast. But I I was thinking that I can show using my errors what other people can can learn. So I, I would say that I, I consider the errors and the failure part of life. Mm. I think that if you are smart, you transform these as uh, opportunities to improve and to become better. And if you just uh, uh, leave these uh, experiences in a passive way, you don't get anything from them. It's, it's mm. just a negative experience and nothing else. So yeah, I think I had... I had, um, well, uh, my biggest failure probably is not related to science. It's more personal. For example, the, the time I didn't dedicate to my family in the past, that's probably what they suffer more. But yeah, now they are, my sons are old. They are, they are <laughs> they're independent. So living their own lives. So it yeah. sounds it sounds like being a good Bayesian, learning from your experience, right? Updating updating your beliefs and your priors. You try something, you fail, you try again with more information. Yeah, the secret is uh, avoid to start to be too strong priors, because uh, yeah, because that's that, and this is actually part of my studies or my articles are pushing that direction, because if you think that some intervention can be so effective you start with a strong prior when you implement or when you read literature not supporting this uh this idea that you 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 created uh, in other people and in yourself it's much more difficult that you 
you change your behaviors or your practice. Mm -hmm. So having priors that are balanced and really commensurate to the evidence, for example, is something useful not only in science, but I think in life. Yeah, I totally agree. It's something we should all strive to do, sort of, however, we must we must say it, it is hard to do, isn't it? It's very uncomfortable to do. It's it, it doesn't feel good when you when you have a particular belief and, and something comes out that challenges that belief. And so I guess that's why you say keep your beliefs as neutral and as commensurate to what the, the literature says as much as possible. And don't get too attached to a particular belief. Yeah, you should. Uh, th- this is something I suggest to my friends and also when you work for a team. Whatever you say, uh, don't be too prescriptive and don't be too, um, don't communicate too much certainty. Because mm. if you say, no, we have to do this because this works and there are tons of studies and these kind of things, uh, and something happened that uh, in theory should lead you to change idea, you don't because you you said to something uh, to too many people. Mm-hmm. You don't want now to change or you know, you want to avoid to look an idiot or something like that. So the only you have to prevent the situation that I, I know it's uncomfortable because it happened to me in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh the difference is that when it happened to me, I also try to to uh, to support my old ideas in a biased way, but I knew I was uh supporting something that in, in reality I probably didn't believe anymore. But mm-hmm. yeah. So it's better to prevent that uh, than uh to, to to cure, you know. So prevent is a prevent is a topical word for today, Franco. We're gonna come back to that in a in a minute. Um okay, number three. How on earth has Italy not qualified for back to back football world cups? What is going on over there? Well uh, I have to be careful what I say, but um, I think the problem is this is something I have been on several times. Italy is a country where some you don't always have uh, the support that you would like or, or you would deserve as a sport uh, system or whatever. But and this is the reason why Italians are quite flexible, let's say, because we survive. We have to survive in several situations. So sometimes, even if we don't have a, the, the strongest team or or the strongest support, in a way or in another, we 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 survive. Mm-hmm. And surviving sometimes means also qualifying for 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 the World Cup or winning the European Championship. And not qualifying after for for the World Cup because uh, this happens when you don't have a system. I always say that when the success are the successes are random is because there's no system behind. So you cannot uh, um, um, you cannot make systematic the performance is is very randomic. And this is, for example, uh, something that in in industry in the process control you try to to control. If you read the literature on on uh, quality management, these kind of things, uh, you one of the first things you learn is that variation is considered an indicator of low quality because uh, when you cannot ensure the same standards and you have very good products and very bad product, this is considered bad mm. and 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 there's no 
system behind or there's no enough control uh, on the system. So I think the problem is that Italy didn't qualify because we don't have a, a, a system. We just uh, survive day by day with uh, uh, with random initiatives from some groups, teams. And so we can have this spike of excellence and this drop in the quality of the performance. Yeah. Sounds like chaos. Okay, so so, so I, I I've, I've been to I've been to Rome. I've been to Italy a few times actually, and w- walking down the streets of Rome, I was so overstimulated by all of the things happening, and it it was it was cool. It was one of the best experiences of my life, but it was it felt like a chaotic experience. Would you say that that's chaos is not a negative term here it's like a lively everything's happening all at once everyone's doing their own thing is that like a typical kind of italian thing without trying to stereotype no i i think that this is basically what i just said mm. uh, we have uh, this um uh, we, we have a system that it's it's not under control mm. so uh, this is a good or bad thing because this allow us to be very flexible because we have to adapt uh, e- easily and quickly to several situations. You, you don't do the same thing. For example, you don't do the same document and you follow always the same procedure or the same. Uh, so sometimes you go there, you do the document, you make the document in ten minutes, and the other time you take three days. So it's always uh, it's always random. Yeah, but that's absolutely. I think it's cultural. I think that Latin countries and, for example, Commonwealth countries, they have these differences. Mm. And I, I actually suffer both. I enjoy both because mm. there are things that I like. In, depends on the situation. From a, a professional perspective, I, I prefer a very uh, under control system. I mean, I worked for 10 years in Switzerland, which, which is fantastic. <laughs> Switzerland is... Uh, is, is is really uh, it's true. It's, it's it's really well organized, and there are a lot of stereotypes mm. that are wrong. Actually, like you know, they are a bit cold. That's not true. Mm. People I know they are very mm. friendly, and yeah. So yeah, your feeling was was right. <laughs> yeah, good. Okay, so hopefully everybody has gotten to know you a little bit better. Let's get into the to the meat of the conversation. I'm, I'm going to go straight straight to the heart of the point, which we're going to sort of anchor ourselves to today. Injury prevention, reduction, or mitigation. Where has all this controversy come from, Franco? Well, I don't know actually why in sport medicine at one point this topic uh, became so popular. I remember when I came back years ago, I I, I read, especially on, uh, on social media, someone complaining about this term, but honestly, I didn't care much. But over years, this topic is becoming more and more common. So the idea that you, you shouldn't use prevention. And um, in recent, probably the last year, this is becoming very strong. And as we have written, it's, I don't want to say it's nonsense because I understand some arguments how, um, uh, that some people um, rise about the, the use of the term prevention, but most of the technical arguments are, in our opinion, wrong. So it's not a pro. If you don't like to use prevention, you don't use it. You use whatever you want. It's a matter. 
The problem is when you start to say to others that they shouldn't use it. Because in that situation, you should have strong arguments. And I don't, I don't want to say evidence because there, here we are not talking about evidence. It's more a, an opinion-based discussion. But the argument should be strong enough. You should have a, a sort of a logical consistency and you, you cannot just say something to support. Uh, because in that case, we enter more in a scientific area where the use of the terms have a specific meaning and the problems should be contextualized. Because now I see that the narrative is a bit changing. And uh, th this is something I see often when you start to chase an, a topic, people change a bit and they, they rise other arguments. There is a there is a, a name for this uh, that I don't say because it's very impolite, but there is when people jump on different topics when you uh, maybe support uh, with good counter arguments the original ones. So I don't know why it started. And actually this is in, indeed something that you see mainly in sport medicine, you don't see in other areas where prevention is used for any kind of disease, even severe and 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 diseases that can cause death, and they use the term prevention without problems. So you can see also policies uh, that are where the term prevention is used. So yeah, I don't know, I don't know why, <laughs> honestly. So what's the what's the best argument? that the prevention opponents so so the naysayers those who are saying don't use the term prevention what are what are they saying as to to explain why they're so steadfast in why we shouldn't say prevention well if you if we start from what is uh, what was said initially and what was written also in some papers even as an opinion but in some papers uh, there were technical arguments such as we don't prevent injuries in all individuals. So the only thing we can do is to reduce the risk, which is uh, something that may sound uh, right, but is technically wrong. Because uh, uh, when you say that you prevent something in medical context, you are saying that you are either decreasing the risk or increasing the time to have a disease or whatever. Mm -hmm. So uh, prevention has, uh, is a general term that includes different aspects. And indeed, uh, we have a primary prevention, secondary prevention, third, uh, tertiary prevention. We actually have also primordial prevention, quaternary prevention. We have a lot of other prevention, depending when the actions, uh, where the actions uh, are uh, uh, compared to the initiation of the disease. So if it's before, after, during, and these kind of things. So the idea that uh, you cannot use prevention because you cannot prevent an event in all individuals is, uh, is technically wrong because this is uh, not what the term prevention in medical setting uh, means. If we go to, and we take the um, dictionary definitions, this may be the case, but I mean, I can find, you know, when, when you look at the dictionary definition, you can find 10 de de definitions. So I can pick the one that support better my my opinion. But here we are in, in, a, in, a, in a medical context. So we 
we rely on, on, on the medical context. The, the, the new arguments are in, instead about the communication. Mm. And in terms of communication, I think uh, there I can see the, 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 the reason why someone may prefer to use the term risk because they, they may think that saying prevention can create too much expectations. But the question is, first, if it may be a problem, but if this is a so big problem, why this is a problem only in sport medicine and not in other, uh, for other diseases, for example? So it seems a bit illogical. Mm-hmm. Maybe they have the same problem, but probably they didn't see this problem as big uh, as we, we see. And the other, the other issue is that this, uh, this doesn't apply only to the term prevention, but this probably applies to any term that you use when you communicate with the patients. And you have to adjust the way you communicate and the terminology you use based on the person you have in front of you. So I don't think that you solve the problem eliminating the term prevention. You solve the problem eventually by saying, to calibrate the terminology based on the patient and based on what they understand and what they get. Because you can use even the term risk and they can attribute to a risk a meaning that is too that is not the, the one that you, you wanted to communicate. Also, I'll give you another example, risk mitigation. We use this term mitigation, but mitigation, for example, I know mitigation because I had a, for some years some education in, in quality management. In the term mitigation in other areas is more mitigating the effect of something that already happened. So let's say you had an injury and you want to mitigate the effect of the injury. So in several areas, mitigation is used uh, with this meaning. It's not uh, as a synonym the, of reduction, for example. It's more to say something happened and now we have, we have to, to find a way to reduce uh, the the consequences of what happened. So again, if I'm a manager and you talk about mitigation, I, I can interpret it in that way. If you know I'm a manager and you know this differentiation, maybe you don't use mitigation, you use another term. So at the end of the day, the, the, the problem of communication is, re, is, is really an important topic, but is only marginal related to the abolition of the term prevention. It's, it's more generic. Uh, and if you if you think that in your in your activity, in your communication prevention created problems, you, you don't use it, it's fine. Mm-hmm. So I don't have any, people can use whatever they want. And, um, I'm, the, the article we wrote is not to say that they cannot use and they have to use prevention. We just said you can use prevention and the, the reasons why people uh, try to convince others not to use it are most are technically wrong some are partially true so don't use it if you don't want but don't tell me not to use prevention which is used everywhere and technically is right in medical context of course yeah you're not a prevention prophet you're not out there trying to convert people to use the word prevention you're just no, you're no. just you're just challenging this notion that we can't use the term prevention. And I think you're right in that mitigation and reduction have their issues as well. So if we're going to be a stickler for words, then we should face that as well. And I I do love your point. The issue is, well, not the issue, the most significant part of all of this is, is in our communication and explanation. 
the term is one thing and it's a small thing, but it's our explanation to the person or the patient about what this might mean for them. And I think that's such a good point. We get stuck on, on the terms. Should we use this term? Should we use that term? Terms probably are relevant. It's more the explanation that matters. Yeah. I mean, at the end, uh, if you think, uh, we, we, for example, we, we, we use uh, often the term risk. And maybe we communicate uh, the reduction in risk based on the studies. And we say, oh, you can have 20% reduction in risk. But this is a relative risk. And uh, the way people can interpret this 20, 30, 40, 50 percent is uh, is most of the time is is uh, an overinterpretation because it depends on the absolute risk you have. So, a 20 percent uh, decrease in relative risk, if the the risk or increasing the risk, if the risk is five percent, mean it means going from five to six percent, which is something that in real life probably you don't you don't you cannot see so clearly. But if you say, oh, there is a 20% increase in the risk, people may be, you know, scared. And, but if the baseline risk is 20%, of course, this, is a, this means increasing an absolute risk, which is much higher, and they can have also a much higher clinical impact. So even when we discuss about risk that we think is much clearer, it's not. It's, it's not. There are a lot of uh, situations in which... Uh, um, we use the term risk, for example, in an in appropriate way. We, most studies present odd ratios and odds, which are not risk, or rates, which are not risk, and people inter interpret as a, as a risk. They are not risk. A risk is a probability statement and goes from zero to one, the, the probability of having an event. So if, if we enter in this semantic uh, fights, uh, I think there may be stronger arguments to to question how people communicate things because it's based on a, 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 an optimal understanding of some basic concept, for example, of epidemiology, things that I didn't know years ago. And I I, I realized studying and I realized this is, these are the errors I made. I said, well, I wrote things that are technically wrong and I'm, I want to write this paper in which I want to explain what they did wrong so that mm. people, other people can avoid to commit the same error. I like that paper idea, Franco. It sounds like the, the memoirs of Franco, what I did wrong and what you can learn from yeah. my mistakes. It's a, I'll definitely read it. should make it yeah. a book. That's, that, that's the problem is that there are a lot of errors. So after 20 years, uh, it, it's too long. So I have to select the, the most important or the most frequent error. Okay, Franco, so one of my favorite parts of your paper, and it was a really elegant description and almost analogy, I guess, um, equating disease prevention with the polio vaccine and sort of vaccines a loaded term at the moment. Do you mind just sort of summarizing to, to me and the audience this metaphor or analogy that you used about disease prevention with the polio vaccine and then perhaps relate it to injury prevention in the sporting context? Yeah, well, we, we tried to use this example because we thought maybe more familiar because the polio vaccine is a, is quite popular uh, intervention. And the idea was to explain that there may be different situations when you implement an intervention. And two of these situations are actually 
similar in terms of concept, even if they have different names. So when you say you cannot use prevention, we said you can. You are saying that we cannot also use causal because the concepts are similar. So basically, we explain that when you you uh, use a, a polio vaccine, uh, you may have four situations. One situation in which people are considered considered doomed because these are people that. Uh, um, would contract the vaccine with or without, uh, sorry, the, the polio with or without the vaccine, because they don't have maybe an immune system strong enough to react and create the immune response. Yeah. So these people are doomed. Whatever, even if you give the vaccine, they will have um, they will have the uh, the polio. So yeah. with or without the vaccine, they're going to get polio no matter what. We have people that are immune, meaning that. Uh, um, they wouldn't have the vaccine with or without uh, the polio, with or without the vaccine, because they, for some reason, they have a strong immune system. So not only they, so they they can fight the virus by their own. They don't need the the, the vaccine. So these are immune. Whatever you, you do, if you give it or you don't give it, they are immune. And after we have other two categories, which are the most relevant for this discussion, in which we have people that, uh, uh, in which uh, the, the the vaccine is effective because they develop this uh, response. So these are people, they may contract the polio without the, the vaccine, but when you give the vaccine, they will not. And these are uh, the, the people in which this intervention was preventive. And after you have people in which the vaccine create problems, um, in which there is a, a causal effect of the vaccine in terms of um, being harmful. So, because this, if you use a, 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 um, the, the live virus, um, they can actually develop, uh, uh, they can contract the polio. So, the point is that uh, the terms prevention and causal are using this classification just to define two different outcomes, but the, their causal, uh, the causal um, effect is the same. One cause a beneficial outcome and the other cause an arm, harmful outcome. When they cause a beneficial outcome, they are said to be preventing. When they cause an harmful, they, they are said to be causally or causative. But the concepts are the same. It's just the, how you classify the outcome, the change, and you change the way you define. Mm. The, uh, but this means that if you're saying that you cannot use prevention. You cannot also say that something can cause uh, an, uh, can be harmful because mm. it's exactly the same. Mm. So are you are we saying that we we should get rid of prevention and also of causal effects and uh, harmful effects? I don't think so. But the point was to explain people that. Sometimes, and that's not, it's fine, sometimes we say things, we try to support our arguments, but we don't realize the consequences that these arguments can have in general. Because the, the, what we should understand is that if we don't want to use prevention for injury, we are saying that we don't have to use prevention for any other kind of diseases. So we can just say, as someone told me, no, but it's more related to it. No, it's not related to it. This is this is related to everything. Or we use it or we don't use it. So that was a bit uh, the example. But if you think about, for example, let's say, so that I don't touch the Nordic Hempstick sprinting. 
let's say that we use sprinting to prevent hamstring injuries, like some suggested as potentially effective. You can sprint and you can be a doom player or athlete because with or without you would have an injury. So you are doomed. There are people that sprinting or with, with or without sprinting, they wouldn't have an injury. And these uh, are, are the, the, the so-called immune. You can have those that with sprinting, they don't develop uh, the, the, the injury, but without they may, may develop an injury. And after you can have someone that they get an injury on the hamstring while they're sprinting for preventing. So in that, in that person's, this uh, intervention create a problem. So it was uh, creating an harmful effect. Mm. So again, you say that is preventive if decrease uh, the number of injuries in that group, if it's in a study, and you say that it's harmful if, in those people in which increase the injury. The concept is exactly the same. Again, it's just that in one case, just, uh, the causal process is, is the same, the causal link. So again, if you don't want to use prevention, it's fine, but you are saying that we don't have to use prevention. Yeah. We have to ban the term prevention in medicine, not in sport medicine. Yeah, that's that's awesome. So so yeah, prevention is a causal term and it's accurate to use if you want to if you want to be strong in saying that you can't use the term prevention, then you probably can't use the term causation yeah yeah they, they, because the other argument that uh, people use uh, use several times and still insist on that is that you cannot prevent uh, the occurrence of injury in all the individuals and therefore you just decrease the risk mm. again this is uh, something that uh, i try to explain technically so when you run a study what do you do you compare the risk of injury in one group with the risk of injury in the control group and intervention group and the difference in risk um is the absolute uh, difference or the relative di uh, difference is the effect which means that some in in the intervention group some athletes that were supposed to have an injury didn't have an injury because they were under the intervention and the other the opposite occurring in the other people people that were supposed to have an injury they had an injury because they they didn't have this preventive intervention which means that some in some people you prevented the injury and this is the way that our studies are conducting any field so it's never uh, all or or nothing is just a proportion of people that were supposed to have an injury didn't have an injury because of the intervention. And this is when you can say that something is effective. So it actually prevented the occurrence of the event in some individuals. And not in all individuals, but this is for any kind of intervention and in any study, unless is something is the so-called sharp causal effect in which uh, you assume that without that factor uh, or with that factor, all the individuals would have or wouldn't have an event, mm -hmm. which is an assumption that is made sometimes for statistical reasons, but uh, it is not 
is not real or is very rarely real. I mean, yeah. if you drink something, a radioactive substance, probably 100% of people will have problems. Um, but if you exclude these extreme situations, normally mm. this is happening. So again, yeah, it doesn't, we don't prevent in all in all uh, in all individuals but when you say that decrease the risk it doesn't decrease the risk in all individuals too someone will decrease the risk of some others will not so it's exactly the same situation mm. an example that's coming to my mind as i'm listening to listening to talk franco is seatbelts and driving a car you know seatbelts will prevent deaths they're not going to prevent everyone who has a car accident from dying, but if you are wearing a seatbelt, you will prevent some deaths. So you don't have to prevent every single injury or every single disease or every single death in order for something to have a preventive effect, right? In, in addition, also the bad uh, can also cause problems. Yep. Rare situations, but it may happen. So again, as, 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 as I said, if it's prevention or is harmful, it's just a question of outcome, the mm. direction of the outcome. But yep. you can say, if you say it's arm can be sometimes harmful, you can say it's also preventive. Yeah. So, so, so if we're going to use this term injury prevention, Franco, should we be careful in in guaranteeing results? So, should we be a little bit careful in our language here? Should we embed some uncertainty into our prediction whether this person's going to get injured or not, or or should we shouldn't we bother? For example, can we say that this program of exercises is going to prevent a shoulder injury? Next season, I guarantee it. I know what you're going to say here, but I'm setting you up. Yeah, actually, the this is a bit uh, busy. Was my message with the Nordic camps in study? The 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 point there was to say there is uncertainty around the effectiveness of, of this intervention, and we need to communicate this uh, intervention. So I was against to say decrease the risk uh, by fifty percent. First, because it's not true. Uh, uh, um, technically, because the fifty percent is from a random effect mode, so it's not the estimation of the true effect of an intervention. It's an estimation of a distribution of effects, which means some in some groups maybe fifty, in some group maybe lower, maybe higher, some maybe even harmful. So the point was that we need to communicate uncertainty, but this. Is, is for, for any kind of, uh, not, not only intervention for health, but also for training outcomes when you train someone. And I think this is the main problem we have, that we don't communicate well uncertainty and we don't accept the uncertainty as uh, professionals or practitioners. We don't accept uncertainty. We, we, we have really issues in dealing with uncertainty. Uh, it's like uh, the difficulty to say, I don't know, there are people that they can't say, I don't know. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, that's the main point. But it's not related to the term. It's related in, to communication in general. Because uh, I can say this intervention can decrease the risk by 50% and you are communicating a strong message anyway. If you say this can, um, this uh, uh, intervention can prevent injuries, you are communicating the same things if you say decrease by 50% the, the risk of injury. That if you think that what you're saying can create too much expectation because you are using the term prevention, you can use, yeah, you can use also something else. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Sometimes when you speak with the patient, you don't even use risk. Maybe you say it decreases the chance of having something. So you can use so many terms and it, it, it really depends. But when we, we discuss, especially to communicate with the papers or with between peers and professional colleagues, uh, we need uh, uh, to communicate in a precise way. In our opinion, saying that is uh, is preventive is 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 precise enough. We we wrote the definitions from different uh, the, the um, cancer associations, the WHO, or, and because for example, if you read the definition, they say it's an action aimed to uh, eliminate something. And people say, oh, you see, it's uh, they 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 wrote eliminate, yeah, but it's an action aimed to. So that's the intention. Doesn't mean that you eliminate in all individuals. Yeah. So it depends how you interpret it. Because if you want to interpret in that way, okay, that's fine. But I don't know even how, how to argue because it's a question of opinion. I'm not. Uh, I'm, I'm not. Um, my my native language is not English, but the way I I read and other people uh, that around me uh, read that is that is 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 an action aimed to. It doesn't mean that it has to have an effect. Mm. You want to say, I use the term injury prevention only for intervention in which I have evidence that they can really prevent or decrease their injury risk. This is again another, another kind of discussion. I may, I may agree, but it depends because if I say, okay, we are doing these things, uh, um, uh, these uh, interventions to try to prevent injuries, I'm communicating some uncertainty. I'm not telling you, I'm sure. We just we are just trying, so I'm communicating to the intention of the interventions. Mm. But yeah, there's a in, in physiotherapy we have something called the Kieran O'Sullivan test, and Kieran O'Sullivan is a physio from from Ireland, and he said he proposed a number of years ago that after you finish perhaps explaining something to someone, say you're going to do this injury prevention program to prevent ACL injury, then you ask that patient or person to explain back to you what that means to them. Right. So then you can have a conversation about, well, if they say, oh, this is going to definitely prevent my ACL injury, then you'll say, well, I can't say definitely. There's some uncertainty there, blah, 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 blah. So is that kind of what you're alluding to there? Well, this strategy to ask the the person to communicate, to tell you what they understood, I, I don't know when and how it was developed in physiotherapy, but this is written in several papers since probably 30 years because mm-hmm. also when I was in orthopedics, it was a common common idea. So this, but this is related to the communication issue. It's not medicine, it's in general in terms of communication. So this isn't something I read several years ago. So absolutely, I agree. If someone in physiotherapy proposed to use this approach, I agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, Good. Yeah. Good, perfect. So finishing off, Franco, what... What are you working on? What myths are you busting at the moment? I know you're uh, you're sitting there in your lab, like a like an evil mastermind trying to bust all these myths that we desperately cling on to. So what are you doing right now? <laughs> I don't want to bust. I, I mean, all I wanted. I, I didn't wake up in the morning and said, "Oh, what I do I bust today?" It just happened, and and sometimes it happened for personal experiences. Uh, for example, maybe I, I have connections with teams and athletes and coaches, and maybe they always show me some literature, always, always, and when I say, yeah, look, this literature is a bit weak, and say, yeah, but 
is 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 um, published here and there. The the consensus, mm-hmm. this kind of things, uh, and maybe I speak with the doctor and say, oh, but I haven't read anyone complaining about this. So okay, so I have to write something so I can say, look, I'm telling you this is not actually right, and I have also written in a scientific publication, so. Now I can, and that's actually one of the reasons why I, I did that. So I'm not. I, I'm really. My goal is to improve, to improve uh, the research in our area, and I'm also in a, in a moment in my career in which I have to to make some decisions that I don't want to to make, whether to do research in first person or to move in another area where I have to create a new a future generation of people that can do the research. And I would probably move in that direction because alone you cannot do anything you need to build. Mm. It's, a, it's a new generation. And because I know this may sound bad for my colleagues, but I think my generation has ruined this area. And so I think we need to fix and uh, we, we need to fix what we we, we have broken. And I feel being part of this generation a bit responsible, and that's why I, I want to try to, to, to improve the area. What people in our area don't understand and accept is that scientific, uh, uh, the scientific process uh, includes discussion, and, and there's plenty of, of uh, uh, situations in the past in which scientists argue with each other. So that's part of the normal process of science because. Since you want to defend your position, you have first developed uh, arguments that are logically sound, internally consistent, based on good literature and evidence, these kind of things, and maybe they can stimulate you to do better or better studies. And the other problem is that when we communicate things to practitioners, uh, I feel uncomfortable when the information I'm providing, I know they are potentially wrong because I know the papers are weak and maybe biased. And this is something that we should avoid because if we want to use the evidence-based approach, we should uh, provide reliable information. And there's a lot of bias for various reasons. Uh, I have the advantage that I move in academia later, so I'm not really in, in this publish and perish battle. People say, oh, but you have published. Oh, yeah, but it's, it, it happened. <laughs> I didn't care when I, I was working in, in the first 10 years. Uh, my my boss uh, saw this as a waste of time, just to tell you. So I had really, I really didn't uh, uh, need to, to, to publish. I was just curious. Mm-hmm. So the publications I have are just the consequence of my curiosity. And they can tell you that sometimes I, I give the idea to other people, I call friends and say, oh, this is uh, something interesting to understand. I don't have time. If you do it, I would be very happy and let me know the answer because I'm curious. That's what, why I'm doing research. So I, I, don't, I don't know what I'm going to do in the future if I'm busting some other. There's something that I, 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 we are going to, to chase a bit. Uh, but uh, it's more statistical oriented. But yeah, it's, it's, again, it's a methodological, it's a methodological discussions which are not academic 
Started. People say, oh, but this statistical methodological is all academic. That's bullshit. Because it's a, it, this has a, a huge impact in practice because it, it is related to the information and to the reliability and validity of the information that we give people that are potentially going to use this information every day in their practice. Mm. So there was a discussion within our group about how to implement the knowledge. And they said, well, that's the last of the problem I have personally now. What I, I want to understand is what knowledge we need to implement. Because we don't have to implement everything. Because if the knowledge is not strong enough, it's also risky. So I think we need first to understand what's the the knowledge that is strong enough to be implemented and disseminated. And after we can discuss about how to do that. Because it's not true that information don't reach the the field. That's not true. There are information that reach the field too quick and too soon. That's a problem. I don't want to, to give examples to because uh, I want to be polite, but there are a lot of things that are absolutely at least questionable and they are widespread everywhere. And if you read the papers and uh, I, I ask people from other fields and they said, I cannot believe you, you're doing that. And yeah, that's, this is what I'm doing. So that's why I'm, I'm, I, I want to, to work. I'm working uh, meta research and trying to improve the research. I want to give uh, practitioners reliable information. I don't want to trick anyone. Good. Well, thank you for all that you do, Franco. You're making us all better scientists, better clinicians, and hopefully uh, by extension, improving the outcomes of our of our patients as well. So so keep it up. Thank you very much. Uh, before we go, Franco, are you still on social media? Where are you at these days? Where can people find you? Yeah, I, I'm. I'm less. I'm. I'm uh, honestly. I'm less present on the media recently in the last year, for two reasons. One is that I'm really, really busy, and the second is that I use the media when I need them, and and because I know how they work, but I don't want to be a victim of the of the media. So, I now I have seen also friends that are becoming very argumentative. Because being argumentative is what creates visibility. So if I say this mito can be done in a better way, no one cares. If I say this mito is a shit, all people start to comment. And I know this is how it works. So I, I, I can be, I'm honest. Sometimes I know, and in the past, I use some posts in a more, in a stronger way because I know that in this way I could reach more people and I wanted to communicate something. It doesn't mean that is because I'm like that. It's more because otherwise you don't have, uh, you, I, cannot, I cannot give visibility to some messages that I think are important. So now I'm, I'm a bit, um, I'm staying a bit uh, far from the, from, from the social media. I use a lot actually because I have a network where there are very good researchers and from time to time, I see the papers, maybe more methodological, statistical. So I download the paper, I can read the paper, the paper. So yeah, but I'm still on on uh, on Twitter. Uh, Facebook is more for personal things. I don't use a lot of Instagram. I'm a bit of, a bit of a mover actually with social media. People think I'm I'm good, but I'm not. And I'm migrating on Mastodon, uh, which is becoming. Uh, it's not so widespread as I was thinking, but it's becoming a, a social in which uh, 
uh, there are more, uh, let's say, technical information, mm. especially regarding what I'm interested. So yeah, th this is my presence in the social media. Now, could I respect your um, not wanting to feed the outrage machine that is Twitter? And, you know, it's impossible to speak in a way on Twitter that someone will not misunderstand you and yell at you. And I'm experiencing that. I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little bit bored and tired of the whole thing anyway. So I respect you from removing yourself a little bit. And, you know, I, I'm the kind of, unfortunately, because of my past in Compass, I'm the kind of person that or move away or fight back. <laughs> and I'm too busy to fight back, so I prefer to stay away because if you slap me, it's more likely I give you a punch. That's the way normally I react. So, yeah, I uh, when I sometimes I see thing, uh, post and say, I don't answer, I don't have to answer because I know that I will, uh, I'm going to lose one hour if I do that. So, totally. take a deep breath and move on, move yeah. on with your life. All right, Frank, Franco, thank you so much. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Shoulder Physio Podcast with Franco and Palazzari. If you want more information about today's episode, check out our show notes at www.shoulderphysio.com. If you liked what you heard today, don't forget to follow and subscribe on your podcast player of choice and leave a rating or review. It really helps the show reach more people. Thanks for listening. I'll chat to you soon. The Shoulder Physio Podcast would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded from the lands of the Tiribalang people. I also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which each of you are living, learning, and working from every day. I pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of Australia.